Can buying green solve climate change? I mean, no, I, I don't think so, but uh, it's, it's worth discussing anyway. Welcome back to Acclimated. Thanks again for your patience. Uh, I had actually planned on getting this episode out quicker than usual, but then there was a um, bit of an unusually active news cycle in the U.S. at least. So uh, I figured I would postpone a little bit because I wasn't sure how much interest there'd be in a uh, podcast episode about greenwashing or whatever you want to call it. So um, we'll see how this goes, I guess. But uh, the format this time around is going to be a little bit different just because I thought I would I would change things up a bit. And, you know, again, as I mentioned before, I'm kind of working out the details of the show still. So in this case, the idea is that I will um, kind of just use an article that's making the rounds uh, or in this case, I guess, made the rounds like five months ago <laughs> as uh, an opportunity to discuss some uh, ecological issues and climate change issues, that sort of stuff. And maybe kind of use the piece as a way to bring up some resources and some readings and stuff that, that have helped me to understand uh, what topics are at hand, share them, and maybe get a little bit of a discussion going, that sort of thing. As a result, this is a little less formal than some of the other ones, and uh, there won't really be media sources to sort of cut back to, because it's really just kind of um, talking through a piece and trying to make some sense of, of what the conversations around it are. So, um, I don't know, maybe it doesn't work. Feel free to reach out. Let me know what you think. Um, I'd love to hear any feedback on it. In this case, the piece is one that was published in The Atlantic back in, I think it was August, maybe September. Um, it's by Annie Lowry, and it's called All That Performative Environmentalism Adds Up. Uh, and then the subheading is Don't Depersonalize Climate Change. And so this is like a really popular topic, obviously, green consumerism, um, trying to find sustainable alternatives or products in the market, all that sort of stuff. Uh, it's been around for a few decades, and it continues to be relevant. Obviously, this is like, you know, a major publication sharing this stuff not too long ago. Um, obviously, market-based solutions are still super popular. Um, so it seems like it's worth discussing. And so at, before I get into this, I'll just mention, I, I don't mean to argue here that um, consumer-based stuff is totally meaningless, or that there's no point at all in trying to find, you know, alternatives to the stuff that's produced in, in the most heinous ways, that sort of thing. But there's a sort of specific argument related to political economy that I, I think this piece makes pretty clearly that's also probably the most um, popular or, or relevant version of this this argument that's been around since, I guess, sort of like the early 90s. And that argument is not just that, you know, it's it's better to buy a bad thing than the worst thing or whatever. It's, it's not that kind of thing. It's more that individual consumer choices can substitute, actually. They can substitute for organizing and collective action. Uh, and in some sense, they will actually... Um, eventually perform the same political work by changing culture. That's the really specific sort of argument that this piece makes most forcefully and that I think is pretty representative of this, the broader discourse around this topic over the past 30 years. That's the argument that I have kind of most serious disagreement with. And 
I'm not super convinced it's substantiated by the history on this so far. And that's what I'm going to kind of talk about a little bit uh, today. Uh, so I'll just, you know, for this first section, I'm just going to kind of like quote and summarize the piece a little bit. And so it opens with this quote. The critics are right that focusing on individuals is a grave error if it obscures corporate culpability and systemic solutions. But I'm not about to get rid of my canvas bags and mason jars, buy a second car, or start taking short flights again. Talking with economists, climate scientists, and psychologists convinced me that depersonalizing climate change, such that the only answers are systemic, is a mistake of its own. It misses how social change is built on a foundation of individual practice. Um, it goes on to say that this is like a false debate between the individual and the collective because it's not an either-or situation. Um, and then, as I mentioned, it goes to make a pretty aggressive case for individual consumption's benefits as a method of political engagement. It mentions that each individual person is maybe not so important, but uh, individuals collectively matter. So therefore, consumer culture matters because it's a sort of collective arrangement. And it's a way of shifting norms, right? This is a big part of the, the piece is this idea that um, consumption habits are a way of shifting norms and uh, cultural mores um, along the way to like a more substantive sort of sea change uh, in the politics of, of climate change. The first thing I'll sort of mention before getting into like real specifics is that this is something I'll probably mention a bunch on, on future episodes if I haven't already. But, um, you know, there's actually a we're now 30 to 40 years into, um, you know, climate change being a really significant topic in politics, right? Being significant enough that it actually is relevant to like elections, uh, political decision making at the executive and you know, parliamentary level, all that sort of stuff, right? Um, and I'm using 30 years or so just because I'm, I think you can draw it back to without any real issues, at least the late 80s, early 90s, when um, they were international uh like diplomatic arrangements and committees coming together to try and discuss this topic and, and create some sort of treaties around it. You could draw it back earlier if you wanted to, but you know certainly the late 80s is where you can see some serious national, international level uh, attempts at climate policy making. And so the, this particular argument around changing cultural norms, I think it relies a little bit on this assumption that is still somewhat prevalent that um, the politics of climate change are not super developed yet, right? That there's uh, not a ton of history to draw on. And so we're still sort of working out how these things like shake out in the real world. And so part of my issue with the way that this piece, and then a lot of climate discussions frame this stuff is that, you know, they speak in, in hypotheticals, right? They talk about what if we took these actions, what kind of a result would we we'd get down the line, that sort of thing. I'm not super convinced that there's that much hypothetical around a lot of these things anymore because we've had you know, accumulated three to four decades of um, various different approaches to, you know, resolving or solving these ecological crises, right? And so we can start to discuss a lot of these proposals, I think, with more context, with more concrete historical context, rather than just hypothesizing about what might come of them. And in the case of these very narrowly focused market-based proposals, these consumption-based proposals as well, I find it tougher to make the case as the years go on. This is something that I'll, I'll probably get into more on, on subsequent episodes, hopefully. But I do think it's worth pointing out that uh, a lot of climate change discussions around what sort of um, strategies to pursue still tend to be fairly abstract, but there's really no need to, to be that hypothetical about it, considering um, how much has actually already happened, uh, both politically and, you know, environmentally. So as the piece goes on, it it basically argues that social pressure through consumption and lifestyle choices 
uh, is is super powerful. That it, it has a great deal of impact on peer groups, on your neighbors, on that sort of thing. The author argues that we are, uh, the term she uses is highly sensitive, you know, to the purchasing habits and the lifestyle habits of the people in our communities or that we see in culture, you know, on TV, on the internet, wherever, that sort of thing. Uh, and so one example of this that she uses is from a book that I admittedly have not read called Under the Influence. But the example is the, the, the rise in popularity, the dramatic rise in popularity of the SUV in the U.S. Uh, the statistics she cites is that in 1992, 8% of car buyers in the U.S. chose SUVs. Um, more than 40% choose them uh, today. And according to this book that she's referencing, that initial bump that, that sort of began this whole trend was due to a movie released in 1992 called The Player, directed by Robert Altman, starring Tim Robbins. He plays, I guess, like a film executive, like a wealthy film executive, and he drives an SUV in it. He drives a Range Rover. So she argues that, you know, audiences saw this. It created a sort of, you know, desirable association with SUVs in people's minds, and so then they wanted to buy them, and then sales um, really jump-started. Certainly the cultural aspect was relevant to an extent, but I find this as the sole determining factor, like the one thing that we can link SUV sales back to, uh, probably a little bit overdetermined or overstated maybe. And so to discuss some of this stuff, I'm going to point back to a book uh, that I think is really, really helpful here called Green Gone Wrong by Heather Rogers, which is kind of an examination of like the supply side, the supply chain behind a lot of green alternatives that you can find in the marketplace as a, as like a regular consumer, that sort of thing. And so Rogers kind of uh, investigates like the production process behind this stuff, as well as like a little bit of the, the political context to try and examine like, you know, how things get to market, why they are offered um, as being a solution to these issues. I think it's a super useful read. Uh, I think it's a, it's a really helpful uh, guide to getting familiar with some of these topics and seeing where some of the stress points are and why the problems are so significant with trying to address, you know, um, the sort of, you know, the sustainability crisis that we're, that we're in at the moment. And one of the things she looks at is the automobile industry, particularly in the U.S. And so she looks at uh, SUV production and, you know, why SUVs became so popular. And she notes that, yeah, I mean, cultural perception and associations around SUVs certainly were a factor in their popularity, but not at all the only one in her reckoning of it. Automakers in the U.S. actually had a, a significant amount of structural incentive to push SUVs as much as possible in like the post-war period and then leading it out of the 90s. Part of this had to do with the way that their uh, their own supply chain worked. SUVs are, or at least originally were, basically built most frequently on existing supply chains uh, and like assembly lines used for light trucks, like a, like a pickup truck or that kind of thing. So this cut down their production costs significantly because automakers could just reuse assembly lines that were already uh, in place. Having them categorized as light trucks also meant that they were exempt from certain uh, fuel efficiency regulations that the U.S. government had in place. So that you know further lowered the production costs. So this meant that uh, SUVs, if they could be sold, would have a much greater profit margin than something like a sedan or like any kind of smaller car. There was also a, actually like this sort of tariff related to SUV production in the U.S. that um, made it prohibitively expensive for European automakers to import them, which meant that that was, you know, a competitive advantage that U.S. manufacturers had, so they wanted to try and take advantage of that as much as, as, much as possible. And so it wasn't until, you know, decades later that those automakers in, in Europe had established, you know, more manufacturing in the U.S. and were able to uh, avoid the tariff. But by that point, there was already, you know, a significant 
base of U.S. support for uh, for SUVs. And then for for consumers, for people buying them, there are tax credits available for people that um, you know automakers certainly encourage people to take advantage of because they want to you know increase SUV sales as much as possible. And so I bring all this up uh, just to point out that there are a number of like structural factors in place that put us in a situation where SUVs are as popular as they are. It was not quite as simple as people seeing something cool in a movie, deciding they want to buy more of them, and then auto manufacturers saying, hey, we should make more of these things. It's a little bit more of a difficult situation than that. And a lot of it has to do with the structures around car manufacturing in the U.S. You know, these, these car companies had uh, you know, meaningful incentive to try and make buying an SUV as uh, attractive as possible to uh, consumers. You know, incidentally, this has happened at kind of the exact same time as there has been this expanding awareness of buying green and buying sustainable and all that sort of stuff, at least in the U.S., which I think kind of complicates some of the pieces argument here, right? If we're arguing that social mores can change through consumption habits and that sort of stuff, and that increasing awareness is a way to sort of um, beget serious political uh, shifts, we're, we're at a difficult sort of tense point where people are in theory, much more aware of uh, purchasing habits and their impacts on the environment at the same time that they are, in in many cases, um, preferring SUVs to more fuel-efficient cars in like serious significant numbers, right? So much so that U.S. automakers like GM and Ford have basically already ended or are in the process of ending their production of uh, sedans in favor of making more crossovers and SUVs, which are, you know, obviously, like I said, less fuel efficient. So I think this presents, you know, a, a bit of an obstacle for the broader argument here of using consumer power to push environmentally conscious production. The story of the SUV is, is one of the productive side of the equation, pushing for something fairly strenuously, getting a result it wanted, and then continuing to push it uh, despite its, you know, disastrous environmental consequences in terms of uh, emissions. And now, hypothetically, if, you, if somebody wanted to buy a more fuel-efficient car from a U.S. auto manufacturer, they, they might have a more difficult time of it, which, uh, which I think would make it even more difficult to sort of affect that cultural change that this piece is discussing. And that gets into sort of, the, you know, toward the end of the piece, the author talks about the idea that changing laws actually typically works best when those social mores that are changing are already in place, that they've already changed, and then you're just sort of legislating based on this cultural shift rather than trying to sort of make a drastic change happen legally that might not already be happening uh, in the culture. Um, she says, quote, rules requiring solar power, regulations encouraging electric cars, taxes on meat, they would be easier to pass and less painful to adhere to if more people were using solar power, driving electric cars, and buying less meat to begin with. You know, again, as I mentioned, I'm not sure that this is as clean of a transaction or, you know, a, a mathematical equation as is being presented here. But even still, the time for this approach is rapidly running out. I'm not, I'm not sure that it even exists anymore. They did. You can sort of take years and years to establish these trends and then craft your policy around them. That seems perhaps a little optimistic given the, the urgency of the, of the situation. And also, I mean, I think there, there's like a little bit of a, in a broader sense, even going beyond climate change, the argument that uh, a legal system has to respond to cultural mores that are already in place is a very slippery slope, I think, for a whole lot of social changes that have been legislated. Um, throughout history that maybe wouldn't have pulled so well if you had asked uh, the population beforehand. But maybe that's all, all I'll say about that one. So again, you know, as I mentioned, you know, we've had variations on this stuff available for 30 years or so now. 
you know, uh, it's a market that's certainly evolved and developed in a lot of ways. Not to say there hasn't been any uh, benefit to it or that it's there hasn't been, you know, advancement in some of these these areas. But the needle hasn't moved in terms of emissions or a sort of greater greater change in our political economy around uh, fossil fuel use, right? And so I think considering it from that angle shifts the conversation a little bit, shifts the perspective. This stuff has, to some extent, been tried already, and it, it, it hasn't achieved the kind of result that many are hoping for yet. And so I don't mean to imply that nothing can ever change or, or that there hasn't been you know, a meaningful shift in awareness of, of climate change and that sort of stuff. But these specific interventions, you know, market-based ones, they do have an established history. And I think it's, it's helpful to put them against that history rather than to just talk about how much potential they might have going forward. And then the piece wraps up with a sort of recommendation. It says, quote, the best some things to do include adopting a plant-rich diet, buying carbon offsets, um, using renewable energy at home, wasting less food, using mass transit, and flying far less often. Your furnace, your car, your commute, your vacations, your lunch, that's where change needs to happen. Wealthy Americans who are far worse emitters than their poor counterparts need to shift their behavior most dramatically and receive the most social sanction. So again, I appreciate the sort of intent here that, you know, somebody can make a difference with how they choose to spend their money, that sort of stuff. But to better understand the, the context and the issues here, I, I, I think it really helps to examine the supply chain, the way these things are produced, the labor involved, the interconnections there, all of that stuff. Because the reality is market incentives um, within the sort of capitalist framework where profit is still the determining consideration, these market incentives can actually lead to dangerous and environmentally devastating outcomes for things that are hypothetically more green. This is like a, f a fundamental problem with the way our economic system works, with market-based solutions in a growth-based economy. So even if a consumer believes they're making the right choices, the environmental destruction deepens and the dependence on that destruction also gets more ingrained. And so as I mentioned, I'm going to be referencing Green Gone Wrong for this discussion, um, along with a couple other other things. But I do think it's, it's, it's a really useful as an overview of, of how this sometimes plays out. Uh, the book came out, I think it was in 2010. The research is from sort of the mid-2000s into then. There's an updated version from a couple years after that, but it's still, you know, the, the principal research uh, stays the same. So the book looks at a variety of products that are built as environmentally conscious. Uh, so that includes stuff produced by organic farms. Uh, like I mentioned, it includes the uh, automobile industry. So that includes electric vehicles. It looks at biofuels, a whole bunch of different stuff. Uh, Rogers investigates the production pipelines for these things, and she often finds that the bigger picture is more complicated than what gets presented to the public, you know, at the store or online or whatever, right? Biofuels, for example, are billed as a renewable energy source. Uh, they're fuels made from organic matter, like plants, rather than from fossil fuels. And so there's a bunch of different uses for them. But in the U.S., the term usually refers to uh, using them as a substitute for like oil used in transportation, like in cars. Um, in a lot of cases, biofuels are um, actually a part of a fuel mix that lessens but doesn't entirely replace a petroleum-based fuel. But the um, big international push for biofuel production over the past you know 20 years or so as a renewable alternative has led to some devastating not entirely unpredictable outcomes, uh, as energy companies often see this as an opportunity for another revenue stream rather than a meaningful replacement for fossil fuels. And so uh, Rogers looks at some of the impacts on the growth of the biofuel sector in Indonesia, for one example, um, where oil palms are grown as a source for biofuels. But to do this at the scale that international energy companies demand often means aggressively ramping up production in a way that means clearing existing forests to create space for oil palms. So I'm just going to quote her at length here to sort of Give an example of how this how this can work. 
Indonesia makes room for oil palm plantations by profoundly altering its two main ecosystems, tropical rainforests and peatland forests, the climatic effects of which are devastating. Clear-cutting rainforest most often goes down in two phases. First, crews use chainsaws and bulldozers to cut and then fire to clear. Leveling the rainforest smashes an important carbon dioxide repository formed by the native trees. Once they're down, they can't sop up any more carbon. Making matters worse, burning the rainforest unleashes the massive carbon dioxide load the trees absorbed and stored throughout their lifespans. Toppling peatland forests is no less catastrophic. Peatlands are tidal wetlands in which evergreen mangrove trees grow on their gnarled, stilt-like roots. Establishing plantations on peatlands requires ripping out the indigenous trees, as well as draining the wet soil, which is composed of decaying vegetation and can reach as far down as 20 feet. Although peatlands cover just 3% of the Earth's land surface, they store twice as much carbon as all of the world's forests combined. Once the trees are gone and the soil loses its moisture, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases that the ecosystem kept locked away are uncontrollably dumped into the atmosphere. So this also leads you know, to ecological destruction with regard to local water sources, due to pollution, due to increased uh, droughts and floods. You know, so there are extraordinary impacts on communities living in these areas. The economic pressure to participate is also significant, but some do resist and, and protest the industry's activities. Corporations, though, um, exert huge pressure on local governments and local populations to skirt environmental regulations, uh, to drive production, to suppress protests. And now to reiterate, this is all to create a product, you know, a source of energy that is presented to the public as renewable and clean. Rogers summarizes it up like this. This, then, is the rainforest dweller's unenviable choice. They can enter into a life of indentured servitude to a multinational corporation, or they can continue to fight oil palm until the plantations swallow their homes. In the West, the choices appear less menacing. Regular gasoline or a biofuel blend at the pump. So I'm going to sidestep for a second here to reference some analysis from another book. It's called uh, A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things by um, Raj Patel and Jason W. Moore. The title is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a bit of marketing sleight of hand. Um, the book is not really, you know, it's not about actually looking at products on the marketplace and that sort of thing. Um, instead, it's actually a, a, an analysis of sort of like the history of capitalism, particularly the early history. Um, and it looks at the ways that capitalism cheapens things like uh, nature, work, and human lives. Those are the, the, you know, among the seven cheap things in the title. And so by looking at this early history, uh, the book examines and offers uh, an overview of the kind of ecology that capitalism both necessitates and produces, right? So the idea here is that nature is not something that exists separate from human society out there elsewhere in the world, but that human life and nature are interwoven, and that capitalism disrupts this relationship and presents nature as something separate in order to exploit it, right? It has to actively produce that separation. So they say, quote, capitalism has thrived not because it is violent and destructive, though it is, but because it is productive in a particular way. Capitalism thrives not by destroying natures, but by putting natures to work as cheaply as possible. Part of the author's argument involves recognizing that labor and nature, you know, all this is all interconnected. And so for capitalism to perpetuate itself, to keep things cheap, to increase profits, it has always designated certain peoples as part of nature, basically, meaning separate from and less than human. So this is seen um, in the colonial regimes, the slave trade, and all these systems that used race theory to justify racial hierarchies. But it persists today, of course, even if the, the literal legal language on the books has changed uh, in some circumstances. And what Patel and Moore discuss is how this cheapening of human life relates to the ongoing destruction of the environment and climate. And I think that becomes evident with the, you know, the biofuel production process that Rogers looks at. And it can also be seen in the carbon offset system, which the piece at the Atlantic mentions as one option consumers can pursue to make a difference. 
Um, you know, it mentions offsets specifically, and then it sort of links out to a short explanation of why they're, there's some controversy around them, but why they're still valuable despite their limitations. But I'm gonna argue that offsets are actually kind of a serious example of how this consumption-based approach can backfire. Uh, I think offsets as they currently exist might even kind of undermine a good deal of the, the marketplace-based argument by demonstrating how much damage it can do despite the good intentions of a consumer. Carbon offset systems have demonstrably led to major problems in, in some of the areas in which they are developed. So by offering them as a solution here, it obscures this problem by offering consumption as a viable response to climate change instead of collective political change, despite the severity of the problems that carbon offsets have contributed to. Um, and so for that reason, I think it's kind of worth discussing offsets specifically. So carbon offsets are basically a type of transaction where um, you pay a company to compensate for some amount of carbon emissions from an activity you've done. So for example, maybe you took a flight, you want to cancel out the carbon emitted by that flight, you pay a company to offset those emissions by planting trees somewhere. That would be one example. That's like a, a popular example. There's others though. Um, in theory, in theory, <laughs> this works because trees store carbon. It's worth noting that their, their full carbon storage potential might only be expressed over the lifetime of the tree. So it, it could be decades before the emissions related to an offset are accounted for. And, you know, they don't store carbon forever, obviously. How long they store carbon depends on a couple of factors. And it's undermined if those trees are then burned or cut down, as the trees will, you know, they release their stored carbon when, they, when that happens. And so as a result of this, um, in Green Gone Wrong, Rogers notes the issue of what are basically deferred emissions rather than offset due to some companies using, you know, very short-lived trees for their offsets. And so those trees, you know, die and release carbon just a few decades after the... Uh, the offset was purchased. Offsets are available um, both to, you know, big corporations um, or they're available to individuals at the retail level. Rogers points out though, at the retail level, there is effectively no regulation. She notes that offset brokers don't really have, you know, legally uh, relevant standards. There's no like inspection process, anything like that. And so although there are um, other companies that exist that offer certification processes, according to a set of guidelines, they're not mandatory. And those aren't regulated either. So the whole process is, you know, a little bit obscured to the person buying it. So in uh, 2019, there was a really good piece um, over at ProPublica about the carbon credit system, the carbon, carbon offset system, that I think is really helpful for seeing behind some of the hype around this stuff and seeing what the actual impact of it is. It's called An Even More Inconvenient Truth, Why Carbon Credits for Forest Preservation May Be Worse Than Nothing. It's by Lisa Song with uh, Paula Mora. Uh, and so this piece is is mostly about uh, credits for preservation rather than for planting new trees. Some of the stuff discussed in this piece is more often employed by governments or, you know, multinational corporations rather than individual consumers. Um, but, you know, I, I think the fundamental issues at work are, are, are similar. Uh, it focuses in particular on preservation credits in Brazil, which has seen a lot of attention, a lot of investment in this area because, you know, obviously it has huge amounts of rainforest that, uh, if monetized in this way, could be super valuable. This is obviously a very attractive idea for uh, politicians, fossil fuel companies, airlines, you know, all these, all these actors, because in theory, it offers a way to claim emissions reductions, you know, maybe for public relations or for legal compliance with uh, environmental regulations, but without actually cutting emissions in a real sense. You know, you get a, a little bit of a best of both worlds thing if it works out. The reporters studied offset projects from the past 20 years from a variety of locations across the world and found that, quote, in case after case, carbon credits hadn't offset the amount of pollution they were supposed to, or they had brought gains that were quickly reversed or that couldn't be accurately measured to begin with. 
Ultimately, the polluters got a guilt-free pass to keep emitting CO2, but the forest preservation that was supposed to balance the ledger either never came or didn't last, end quote. These conclusions were based on uh, contemporary scholarship, on official government reports, on satellite imaging, uh, all sorts of stuff. So it's not just anecdotal. And actually, these reporters aren't the only ones who have found these kinds of issues with carbon credit projects. One of the programs that facilitated offsets uh, is the Clean Development Mechanism, which was created by the Kyoto Protocol, which I mentioned, I think, in the last episode very briefly. Um, it was an international treaty um, designed to, to curb emissions. It had a whole lot of sort of market-based features in it. They uh, have not worked, as you might be able to tell. <laughs> um, but, you know, we'll get into that uh, some other time. The piece notes that the clean development mechanism uh, subsidized thousands of projects, some of which caused controversy due to uh, human rights abuses, among other things. But as to their actual efficacy, uh, it says, quote, a 2016 report found that 85% of offsets had a low likelihood of creating real impacts. Uh, another program, Joint Implementation, has a similar track record. A 2015 paper found that 75% of the credits issued were unlikely to represent real reductions, and that if countries had cut pollution on-site, instead of relying on offsets, global carbon dioxide emissions would have been 600 million tons lower. Another offset initiative comes from uh, the UN. It's called RED, R-E-D-D. -D. stands for Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Forest Degradation. And this focuses on preserving rather than planting new trees. Norway is the biggest supporter of the RED program. It spent about $3 billion over 10 years on it. But in 2018, the country released a report on the results of that investment. I'll quote the piece again here. The country's efforts had failed virtually every test. Norway's results were delayed and uncertain. The science of measuring carbon was only partially in place, and there was considerable risk of what's called leakage, when protecting one patch of land leads to deforestation somewhere else. That problem alone creates considerable uncertainty over the climatic impact, the report concluded. And on top of all this, uh, you know, as Rogers noted in Green Gone Wrong with retail offsets, um, tracking violations and enforcing accountability is extremely difficult logistically, even with the UN programs that actually have resources dedicated specifically to that task. Obviously, now this is not great, right? Uh, in Brazil, which the piece looks at most closely, part of the issue has to do with a lack of economic opportunity. And so we kind of circle back to a core issue that Rogers highlights in looking at biofuels and that Patel and Moore uh, examined in their book, which is how capitalism produces a certain kind of nature and its demand for profit. Uh, activities that don't meet that threshold often can't be maintained, even if people would prefer to do them, because they leave people without the money they need to meet their basic needs. So as a result, you know, as you may already be aware, deforestation in Brazil has increased in recent years, particularly since the election of Bolsonaro, as his government has focused on expanding the agricultural industry at the expense of forest preservation. In the state where the ProPublica writers did most of their reporting, that's meant a notable increase in soy and cattle production, which can mean cutting down trees that have actually already been designated for preservation as part of offset programs. But the piece notes that economic realities mean that sustainable alternatives basically aren't viable for a lot of the people living there. In some cases, it's because, you know, the funding or resources for those alternatives hasn't been supplied or hasn't cut, even after a commitment has been made. People have received saplings to plant from the government, for example, but then haven't been provided any of the tools necessary to prepare the land, so nothing gets planted. In other cases, it's because there's not a significant enough market for the sustainable alternatives for someone to earn a living from. As the piece points out, quote, these kinds of frustrations have undone forest offset projects across the world. They target rural residents who would otherwise cut down trees for fuel or to clear pastures for agriculture, but that only works if carbon sales provide a reliable alternative. They rarely do, end quote. The piece quotes a former rubber tappers union president who states that, quote, people want us to starve to reduce carbon emissions, end quote. You know, even though the multinational corporations and countries making these demands have contributed most to climate change, uh, you know, as the union president points out. You know, so I think it's worth 
considering all of this, right? Obviously, deforestation is is bad, but there's a real tension here where nations uh, like the U.S. and the U.K. make these demands on, for example, uh, you know, communities in the Amazon rainforest, and these demands are made so that you know, governments and corporations in global north can continue polluting, but not actually offering communities any sense of economic alternative, right? They're not providing anything uh, outside of just a sort of uh, admonition for for a certain activity. And so instead, what we get is op-eds like this one and the sort of argument that we've been hearing for the past few decades, where um, you know, consumers in you know, the United States, for example, are told to buy better to affect change, despite the huge distance from the implications of buying better for communities globally. You know, again, I think this is just, just one example of the cheapening of human life and its relationship to the environment that Patel and Moore point to in their book. A lot of proponents of offsets believe they haven't really been given a proper chance yet because of all these sort of sh shortcomings and complications. But I think a key issue here is just that really the only guaranteed way to address global warming is through direct reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. All this other stuff is a way around facing that reality head on. And Patel and Moore actually kind of discuss this topic specifically toward the end of the book where they talk about the financialization of the atmosphere effectively, right? They say, quote, the climate crisis has afforded an opportunity for finance to present itself as a mechanism of global salvation. It's through carbon credits, offsets, and permits to pollute the atmosphere that the atmosphere will actually be saved, or so we are told. This is where communing can finally be ended through the full financial externalization of collective responsibility, turning what need to be collective decisions on the fate of the commons into a financial product in a global market, end quote. I guess to wrap up, I would just sort of offer this thought that's been sort of like bugging me about about the way that this conversation typically goes. Um, I think the key thing here is that, you know, this argument kind of puts forth the idea that this activity can grow over time to put pressure on political systems uh, and on the market and that this will lead to change further on. Now, I, again, I think that that's not evidenced in history to this point uh, as far as like environmental issues is concerned, like climate change specifically. But let's say we accept this, right? if we accept that that is actually the case. With this mode of political pressure, and as the piece argues, you know, as, a, as kind of the principal method of political engagement, right? What does the future that is being demanded look like? You know, given all the issues and inequalities associated with the supply chain, with offsetting, with all these alternatives that are supposed to be greener, all this stuff that we've sort of been, you know, talking a little bit about here. This consumerist approach, I think, actually indicates a comfort with these things, right? a desire to sort of pave the way for a future with greener living for some, but not for most. And so I don't think that changes at the individual level won't be necessary. You know, certainly um, true sustainability will require changes in consumption and energy use and all that. But when we take into consideration the whole supply chain, the whole process, the whole uh, impact of these decisions and what it costs for certain communities and their ecosystems to like produce these things, to make them viable for people living uh, in the U.S., for example, when we take all that stuff into consideration, is that the kind of world that sustainable movement really wants? But with collective political action and organization, um, you know, that offers an opportunity to demand and present genuine alternatives that reduce emissions without immiserating people across the globe. That, that's a really key thing for me is as much as I think that this stuff, consumerist stuff, has, you know, significant obstacles and is sort of needlessly complicated when there's more direct routes to it, there's also a sort of a principal perspective that I think is, is a real crisis that's lurking within it, which is that it doesn't offer an alternative vision that actually provides people with a better way of life in a, in a more sustainable future for, for the planet.
that's it. That's basically all I got for this one. As I mentioned before, this is a sort of a trial run for a different type of episode to toss in every now and then, hopefully to maybe break up the schedule a bit and maybe offer some um, some conversations about stuff that's a little bit more, uh, <laughs> I guess, contemporary than some of the other stuff I talk about on here. Um, let me know what you think. Thank you so much for listening, and uh, I'll see you next time.